Hello, and welcome to a very special Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes to a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work-related reasons. As soon as he's back, which is we're planning on mid-July to August, we will be resuming the regular weekly podcast with A Storm of Swords. We recently wrapped up A Clash of Kings with uh, Brand 7, a great episode we did with Manu, so check that out if you haven't already. So until Jeff's return, I'm going to be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts of my own. So uh, check out our Podbean and Patreon for those going forward over the next couple months. And starting it off, I'm very happy to welcome back my guest for this week, Clint from the Learning Hands podcast. Thanks for coming on, Clint. I am super excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. As, as Emmett mentioned, I uh, since the last time I was on, which was back in September of 2019, I started a podcast called Learned Hands with uh, Maester Mary, who's also been on somewhat recently for Not A Cast, uh, called Learned Hands. And we've been kind of trying to identify and explore some of the legal questions that come up in A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. We've got, we've had, uh, uh, we've been doing it for about a year. We've had about 18 or 19 episodes uh, and just been having a really good time. And I do want to say, of course, that uh, part of the reason why we started this podcast um, was to kind of uh, draft a, in your wake, in, in the wake of the Nauticast, <laughs> was, was, uh, uh, we're both big fans of, of the Nauticast, so uh, wanted to kind well, of thank you. add on to the extent that we could. I mean, you guys bring a great perspective to bear on actually knowing things, <laughs> which, is, which is nice. That's been great. We had so much fun having you on. Obviously, I, I can't believe that was a it was a year and a half ago that we had you on. That's wild. Time is both uh, is both very fast and very slow over the last couple of years. That was right back at the beginning of a Clash of Kings. Yeah, it does feel like just yesterday that I was here talking to you guys about Tyrion too. I do want to say, or do, do want to note for folks who might be missing Jeff, if you really, really just miss the sound of Jeff's voice, <laughs> like so many of us do. Jeff was nice enough to come on Learning Hands podcast very recently. We just did a three-hour-long episode with him called The Brotherhood Without War Crimes. It was episode 17, um, and it was about whether or not the Brotherhood Without Banners overstepped the boundaries of war in sort of the modern and medieval contexts. It was so much fun. Um, actually, it was Jeff's idea that this topic was just Jeff's idea, and I think he had a lot of fun doing it too. And overall, I think it was one of our best episodes. So if if you are, you, the Not A Cast listener, are thinking, man, I just miss, I miss that rich timbre of Jeff's voice. <laughs> Of course. Then you can hit up the Learned Hands podcast, episode 17, and hear it to your heart's delight. Uh, we also got Jeff to admit that George W. Bush was bad, so that's a thing. Truly, my heroes. What a, what a service to, to the community <laughs> right there. But yeah, great episode and a great example, I think, of can get really, really deep into these, these thorny ethical issues that George poses. A lot of complications that he might not even be thinking through himself, but just he knows, I think, dramatically to pose... Uh, exciting, ambiguous scenarios. The Brotherhood is a great example. I think that that sets the bar. You were talking about coming in our wake, but I think you set the bar real high in terms of talking about the Brotherhood stuff. But it makes me even more excited to talk about that in A Storm of Swords once once we do get Jeff back. Because I do I do, uh, love that Barrack and Thoros. Those Arya chapters are really, really good stuff. But yeah, we had, we had a great time having you on for Clash of Kings Tyrion 2, where we talked all about Varus's famous riddle about power and how it's nothing more than a shadow on a wall. 
So today, now that we have finished A Clash of Kings on the main cast, we are going to look back on the book to see how that concept, that riddle, played out in each POV, and discuss somewhat how the Shadow on a Wall concept is going to play itself out in A Storm of Swords, because it doesn't go away. Yeah, I have to say that that when I suggested uh, on your episode for Tyrion 2 that Varys' riddle was the central political philosophy of the series, that that theory that I had was not perhaps entirely baked. It was maybe like three quarters baked. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, maybe, uh, it's, I'm just going to you know appear and say that it's the central f- political philosophy of the series. And I don't know. I'll see how it goes. <laughs> but um, it, you and Jeff really took that notion and completely ran with it. And I was <laughs> delighted to see how often you would apply the metaphor in ways that I frankly did not remotely consider or anticipate, never would have thought of. There was times when Emmett, you would go, and that's the shadow on the wall. And I would go like, holy <laughs> shit, pretty he's right. It's true. <laughs> I had no idea. Well, thank you. And I would be like, so so thank you, Emmett, for, for sort mm-hmm. of retroactively proving me so correct over the last year and a half. I, I was just like, that's oh, been yeah, my big that, project. that's really smart. Good. Some, I, I'm, I'm really glad, glad noticed. Good. he said that. I definitely thought about that <laughs> all along. It's 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 been it, it comes it comes in handy. It's it's a it's a great metaphor. Nothing nothing like a great metaphor. <laughs> Before we get a, get into applying the shadow on a wall to every part of a Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords, our usual spoiler warning: uh, all published books, five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, the histories, the interviews, sample chapters for the Winds of Winter, Game of Thrones, the TV show. Spoiler warning for anything and everything. So I thought we would start, obviously, with Tyrion. He gets the most chapters of anyone in Clash and Storm if you put them together. He's kind of the overarching protagonist of those two books. And, of course, we started talking about this concept with Tyrion. It comes up in the Tyrion chapter, so it makes sense. Uh, We've seen over going through the Tyrion chapters on the main cast that he is definitely a more a more ruthless politician than Ned and more systematic, I think, in his focus, getting rid of Janos Slint and replacing him with someone that... He knows might not be personally loyal to him, but certainly more useful and more loyal than Janos Slint. And you, you see that he wants to, you know, he sees he zeroes in on Pycelle as an agent of corruption. Right. But there is still, I think, a flaw that applies to this theme and that he fails to consider his public image. He fails to consider how other people are looking at him. And he specifically fails to consider that, I think, for, for sympathetic, dramatic reasons and that his dad is basically hammered into him his whole life. No one's ever going to love you. So he's like, well, yeah, that's just a guarantee. Why would I even try to change this immovable object? But that ends up being his, his failure, that he doesn't understand Varus's riddle, really, even though it's being told to his face. Yeah, I just think it's fascinating that this is the the point of view where the riddle is introduced, this idea that, as we now all agree, is the central political philosophy of the of the series, yes. uh, <laughs> that it's introduced in a POV that doesn't really take the lesson to heart in, in any real way in the book that it's introduced. It's notable because it comes kind of out of nowhere. Varus is like, just sort of throwing this out there. So you as the reader think, why is Varys telling a riddle and what does it mean? And then as you said, he he Tyrion kind of takes in this information or at least listens to it, but for the most part he does very little with it. He never to my recollection and maybe you would know better, at any point later in the book, he never thinks back about the riddle. Um Not in any major memorable way. No, maybe in passing, but I don't remember him doing so. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he makes he he. So he just sort of forgets about it, and he makes very little effort to insulate himself from 
the encroachment on his power by wrapping himself in the trappings of power, which is, I think, what Varys is suggesting. Varys is suggesting, hey, look, if you want to be powerful, you need to get the people on your side. And he just doesn't do that. As we talked about in, in, in Tyrion 2, the, the, he, he just sort of forgets about it. And it's absolutely to his detriment. And you can really see it start to encroach upon him during the riot when Jaslyn Bywater finally has the nerve to kind of say to his face, look, I can't even promise that 24 hours from now we're going to be in charge. And the reason I can't promise that is that, sure, you're the relative adult in the room. I'm talking to you and not Joffrey or Cersei, but they hate you even more than Joffrey or Cersei. And you don't seem to be taking that into account. You're taking everything but but that into account. Um, I've been... um, rereading the uh the hillary mantel books about uh thomas cromwell uh wolf hall sure. and bring up the bodies and the recent one mirror in the light and uh thomas cromwell has some a lot of stuff in Littlefinger that people have pointed out but he's got i think this kind of certain thing in common with Tyrion, at least as he's presented in those books where he's like he's really good at 95 percent of what he's doing and that the <laughs> other five percent is what ultimately brings him down where he's 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 baked into the cake a certain amount of being hated and almost takes a certain kind of miserable pride in that. And he doesn't realize that's, you know, that's kindling waiting to be set on fire. Right. And you can be hated and still be powerful, right? Um, And Tyrion's father is a great example. Tywin is hated. Everybody, you know, is nobody is like, oh, the great man Tywin Lannister. But everyone fears him. And Tyrion doesn't really make people fear him either. Um, there are, you know, there are two sides to that coin. You can make people love you or you can make people fear you. And, and obviously George does a lot of work exploring the difference between those two things and the, the sort of ripples that happen when one leader chooses one over the other. But Tyrion makes sort of no effort to do either. And that's really a problem for him. Um, and you see that sort of at the climax of his arc, which is the, the denouement of the book at the Battle of Blackwater. It, at the battle, as you guys pointed out in your episodes on the Blackwater, your excellent episodes on the Blackwater, that's the apex of Tyrion's power. He is, you know, he finally gets the support of some small people by making, you know, some a, a nice rousing speech. And then he goes into ba- battle and then his power is gone in an instant, like one might snuff out a match. Um, and so the rest of his story from the very end, the tail end of Clash to Storm and then Dance and on is is about Tyrion on some level dealing with the trauma of losing the power that he once had on top of, of course, the trauma uh, that his family and society has already inflicted upon him. He He reached so high in that sort of Icarus way and he was right there and then it was just shoved out from under him and now he he's dealing with how to intellectually understand and emotionally deal with the effects of that. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, both intellectually and emotionally. And the two are kind of getting in each other's way, right. as they often do with Tyrion. And yeah, as we're going to be covering in Tyrion's Storm of Swords chapters, he is he's quite quickly and rudely shoved out of power and uh, forced to kind of sit around fuming as everyone else who took credit for the winning the Battle of Blackwater <laughs> right. exercises power. Uh, instead of him, uh, most particularly his father and the Tyrells. So in terms of relating it to the theme of the shadow on the wall, Tyrion is kind of too late, kind of uh, arriving at the point. His few illusions and his privacies are being stripped away until he snaps. Tyrion's arc in Storm 
is at him basically falling down the ladder of power and banging his <laughs> head on every rung as he goes along. Perhaps that's what makes Tyrion finally learn the lesson that Varys was trying to teach him at the beginning of Clash, that Tyrion's own failure to convince the people and the lords and other people who might have some power that he was actually helping the city, or at least at bare minimum that he wasn't a demon monkey man, that his failure to to do any of those things puts a giant target on his back, and that's why the scene at his trial is so powerful because we as the reader know that to the extent that there was a person with power in King's Landing over the last, you know, two and a half or book and a half, I guess, or two books um, that was actually doing something to protect them. It was Tyrion. Yet, you know, nothing that, or very few things that anybody says says in the trial against him are actually false, right? Like, you know, he there's a, the testimony from uh, was it Boris Blunt or one of the Kingsguard who says that he had threatened Joffrey over and over again, and that's true. And you know, the testimony from Pycelle is true, and the testimony from Varys is all true, um, saying that Tyrion was saying all of these bad things. And he didn't have character witnesses that he could call and say, no, actually, Tyrion saved the city. He, he just did because he didn't care. On some level, I have to think that Varys, as he was testifying against Tyrion, had to be like, you dumb motherfucker. If you had just listened to me, you wouldn't be in this situation. He's being shown that it's all in how you frame it, that the raw material is there to frame Tyrion as a hero or a villain. So what matters is who gets to frame it and who gets right. to piece it all together. And by the time you're done watching that trial, as Tyrion thinks to himself, of course, even I'm half convinced that I did it at this point right. because of, 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 of how well woven this narrative is and how, how inevitable it is. And yeah, that, that there's a, there's a specific skill to that that Tyrion, for all his, his wit and his cunning, doesn't seem to realize. And this is getting into dance, but I've always wondered if that's if part of why Tyrion kind of reacts to young young Griff the way he does is because he's annoyed at that. Against like, oh, another master meta narrative that's just going to take over and do like he's just like he's so sick of of ever being able to like kind of do that part of politics better than him, especially because it's Varys who's doing it. Right. So that is that is a kind of a hysterical part of Tyrion's story. My hunch is that at some point in Winds, Tyrion is going to think back on the riddle and apply it to Daenerys as uh, as after he you know connects with D Danny and becomes team Danny I think that he's got to connect it to her and I think that's why or I that's my hunch as to why from a from a meta perspective or a storytelling perspective that the riddle was introduced in his chapter that's a great idea because as you say as you said earlier it hasn't really come up in Tyrion's thoughts and the kind of the object lesson was his failure to learn it but it could it could come back in the kind of the, the darkest and grandest of moments specifically to Varys's doom even that could that could be really great oh yeah so shifting POVs within King's Landing to Sansa in the Clash of Kings obviously she is not in command of resources as much as Tyrion she is more in the position of knowing what she's doing is 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 shadow puppets but still having to play along and still having to kind of pretend to be her more naive self she has to perform this role of chivalric love but in a dangerous lion's den and she's dealing she's dealing with the knights she's dealing with the nada knights with uh, dantos hollard and sandor clagain and dantos is is very much putting on a role and performing something from the story is an illusion you're supposed to follow 
And Sandor is is telling her, hey, that's all fake, that's all lies, that's all performance, but which is true, but the the thing with Sandor is, is he's claiming that oh, I represent the truth, which is also that's not true, actually. Sandor is not, you know, representing reality any more than anyone else. He's got his own defense mechanisms and his own narratives he loves. And it's just kind of he's, you know, like like many people who claim to have have seen through cynically everything every, you know you have your own narrative you fall back on like anyone else and i think sandor is gradually forced to to face that as he goes forward there are those scenes in the blackwater where sansa is is in effect learning about the shadow on the wall from from cersei and and from sandor as you point out that she's learning sure. about that projection of power and why that's important and how the, why that's especially important in a crisis like a battle um and as Sansa does, she picks up the lesson very quickly. She applies it in that wonderful scene where she sings to the assembled ladies to try and calm them for the specific reason. And she she lies to them in the middle of that. For the she she projects the shadow in a way in order to pacify some people who you know were very scared at the point that point. Um, you know, so she does it for good reasons, um, or at least not bad reasons, but she's at least showing how she's picking up those lessons about the trappings of power, about the performance of power, and how that is affected. There's an interesting contrast, I think, in terms of how that's being done around her, where like at the beginning of the book, it's like Joffrey's trying to put on his birthday party, and it's just, it's kind of a miserable failure, and you kind of sense the tension in the room yeah. where it's like, this doesn't feel, doesn't feel like we're hanging out with the king on his birthday. This doesn't look and sound as proper as it should. And by the end, everyone's gotten together and the show is is there. I also think the final throne room scene in, in Sansa's final chapter is very reminiscent of the Greens coronation of Aegon II in the dance. We just did an episode on the Dance of the Dragons on the Greens coup, basically, after Viserys I dies, where the Greens, for all of their general fuckery, they are very astute at putting on the trappings of power. And so what they do is they they like bring Aegon to the dragon pit and they give him Aegon the Conqueror's crown um, and they, they put on full display. They have dragons everywhere and, and all the trumpets and all of the bells and whistles to convince all of the people and the assembled lords that they, hey, hey, we've got everything under control. No problems here. Everything's going how it how it should. And in my mind, when I was reading that, it was very similar to that ending throne room scene at the end of Clash, where Joffrey is calling all of the lords to do him obeisance and, you know, saying, oh, no, that we, we've, we've got this. We are, I was the rightful king the entire time. And everyone who fought for Stannis, they were the traitors um, and come to me and you have and you know Tywin is there on his horse and it's it's this big show of power that's really important in that way to show that you have those trappings of powers you have the you control those symbols of power so that when Stannis sitting at home on Dragonstone is licking his wounds he can't he can't point to the iron throne he can't point to the the crown he's just Stannis sitting at home exactly and that's not much on its own right yeah, it's the it's that a uh, self fulfilling prophecy where where you, if you act like you're in charge, 
that's what makes you in charge. And that's, that's the, it's the kind of yep. perpetual motion machine that, that is kind of, I think the, the, the kind of the humor of Stannis is that he can't get started. As he says, like, I can't, I would go out there and conquer, but I need to have already won in order to get men to, you know, it's, it's like, a, it's a catch 22 as he describes it in a storm of swords. And it's a kind of a, a closed loop, which is what makes the, the, the temptation of Melisandre so strong. But uh, we'll get a, Get more into to Davos later, moving on into to Sansa in, in A Storm of Swords. So if in class she's like, she's feeling kind of trapped within this role and within this performance she has to play for other people. Storm, I think, is is this, for her, is this series of people promising her, okay, that's over now. You don't have to play that role anymore. And then gradually you realize that they just have another job for her. Right. right. <laughs> They're like, here's here's another mask you have to wear. You're working, for, you're playing in my play now. It start, starts out with the Tyrells, of course, very overwhelmingly. When they when they take her to tea with Helena, and then they just like at, at, at her wedding they just like pretend that they don't know her. She's married to Tyrion, which would be like, oh, here's you know, here's uh, you're you're removed from Joffrey's direct control, but now you have to like like put up this miserable face of a wife. Littlefinger, you know, I, I'm taking you home, my lady, I'm spiriting away from King's Landing, but now you have to play Elaine Stone and Lysa. Like that should be you know at the end of the book, that should be the end of having to play roles, right? That's your family. You're back to your family. But still, even there, Sansa just just can't be herself, and I think that she's just so exhausted by the end of that. Yeah, I I and I think that this kind of dovetails into what we're or follows nicely upon what we were talking about previously, and that Storm is a continued lesson for or a series of lessons for Sansa to figure out how to wield power um, in the most effective way, and she to to. George's credit in writing the story, she gets a whole lot of different teachers on that. And she's, you know, probably going to have several more before she eventually moves to take power in a real way. Um, and I, you know, can't wait, can't wait for that. I agree. I think you're starting to see that transition and feast just you're, you see some real, uh, I think, tangible signs of it in terms of how she's watching Littlefinger handle the Lord's Declarant. So King's Landing, as we were covering with those two POVs, is obviously the center of political power in A Clash of Kings and the Storm of Swords. But another POV that we constantly see be big political events through is, of course, Catelyn. Yes. And in A Clash of Kings, I think, you know, Catelyn, is, she's just giving us this this walking tour of the image factory <laughs> yep. at the heart of power from, from Rob to Renly to Stannis. She's showing us... Like, you know, here's here's all the ways you can perform political power successfully, not successfully, acting like a warrior, acting like a party guy, acting like the, 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 the legalist. Here's here's all the various ways. There's not just one way to be in charge. I mean, Catelyn is my favorite POV for a number of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And part of it is because I love her internal monologue so much. But uh, another big Absolutely. part of it is that she just bumps up into all of these institutions and structures of power by virtue of her arc, um, where she could be just sort of a passive narrator, but intend, instead ends up being just a really powerful voice all along. And of course, in this book, she gets to literally see the literal shadow on the wall <laughs> that literally kills a king. And I know, Emmett, you've talked in, at various points in on the Nauticast about how, how you really, really love when these metaphors um, become literal in a in a story um and i'd love to hear why that is well that's a good question i think a lot of it is just really enjoying horror and horror stories where you know metaphors come to life and try to kill you sure because i think if you're gonna if you're gonna bring a a concept to life like that it should be weaponized you know it should be scary i think and made visceral and i i love in this case 
I just love that it's just the, that's the very center of the book that this happens, that the, you see the shadow peel itself off the wall and strike. And then it's just, it's so very, just very quick and so over. And I, I like the shadow babies. I really realized when rereading, it's like, wow, this is, this would not work if it went on longer than it does because yeah. they're kind of silly and the rules don't make much sense. And it is very obviously just Varus's thing, but literal. I think, I think George couldn't resist this concept, but I think he also knew wisely. I got to not let this take over the story because it, it could have made A Song of Ice and Fire real dumb. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in the hands of a lesser writer, it would become very ham-handed. You know, like in a lesser writer, Catalan would be like, what is that shadow on the wall? That is, you know, you know like. <laughs> and then Tyrion would hear about it and relate it directly. Yeah, there'd be a whole thing. Right, exactly. In the abstract, it does seem silly. And you're right, if if he kept them around, they would continue to be silly but you're absolutely right that it works a thousand percent in this and in in a really powerful way obviously it's a it's a barn burner of a scene both on the page and you know on the screen when we saw it um in the Mm -hmm. show regardless um her arc is a structure is is generally a struggle which between what she believes what catalan believes power to be which is generally like norms and institutions and cultural touchstones and what power actually is um, which is often brute force or um, show a force at least or affirmative or sometimes affirmative rejection of those norms so like, like Catalan is is a normie like capital n normie she is just like the and i don't mean this in a bad way but she is just incredibly basic with her understanding of the world she she she's just a normal person through and through and watching her grapple with a world that is rapidly fraying at the edges is so heartbreaking and so dramatic and great and so interesting from a storytelling level because we as a people have all been at a at a place where we are sort of relying on cultural institutions or norms to protect us and then we re- rapidly realize oh they're not going to or we become a little bit more cynical and so watching somebody who is not a fool in any way take that journey is really really fascinating and interesting i agree and what i always think about catalan is that she's someone who sincerely believes that the system as it's established will produce good outcomes like she has she has that line to Brienne, like the way it's supposed to work is i protect the kids and then the men protect me and it's supposed to that's how the feudal system works is everyone's protecting someone else and that's our job and if we all do our job then we'll all be protected but if she's saying that she has like this tired smile on his on her face where it's like they're all gone and so clearly it's not working but even though she is like you say she's a smart person she doesn't she can't come up with anything else. I mean, like, you know, it took death for Beric Dondarrion to come up with something else. Right. That's what we're getting to in a little bit. You know, it's in Catalan, you know, by the time she uh, she dies and come back, she has taken some different lessons. So, yeah, that that goes right into her Storm of Swords storyline where it's that, that faith she has in the system and all its kind of symbolic rituals, all these shows of faith. And that keeps getting getting more and more shaken as you go through Storm. It starts off with her having just freed Jamie, And it's like these awkward men in her room who worked for her dad going... Okay, our job is to arrest you, but we really can't bring ourselves to do that because of what that looks like. And it's just like, oh, what's our job? What are the rules? And it's kind of a humorous scene, but then you trace that same arc to the end of her story in that book, and it's the Red Wedding, which is the thing that Catalan built her whole worldview around. Nothing like that could ever happen. And then she has to watch it happen. 
I think, you know, through no, the Red Wedding is amazing, obviously, but I think it's incredible because it's through her eyes specifically. Absolutely. She honestly, fervently believes that that cultural norm of guest right will protect her and protect her child and protect everyone there with her. She believes that within her heart of hearts, and she's so insistent in Catalan 6 of A Storm of Swords on making mm-hmm. sure that everybody agrees. She goes back and forth and is like, no, no, bread and salt. Bread, check, salt, check. We're doing this. It's a contract. We had a couple of episodes on on Guest Right focused heavily on that. And she is, we like to say uh, in Unlearned Hands that the Starks are all lawyers because they're very, very literal. They, they, hmm. they keep those laws and they know them and they really, really rely on them. And so she's there and she believes that she's protected because she believes in this shadow that is dancing on the wall, but it's all bullshit and she can't see that um, until it's too late. And it is just such a, I mean, it's a, it's a literary masterpiece and it, it's just a wonderful or not wonderful, wonderful and terrible way to enter story in storm. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not just, um, it's not just horror. It's also tragedy because of her, her beliefs finally kind of, finally kind of giving way in that, that, that last gasp. And um, speaking of people whose hard-won faith in the system has to give way, <laughs> uh, moving on to Davos, uh, one of our new POVs in the Clash of Kings. Since we covered in the, the Davos Clash of Kings chapters, he's not, he is not a, a really wielding command of events in a great, great degree yet. He's, he is more, he's more bearing witness to kind of how this shadow on a wall process works and how it's kind of bearing on Stannis. And he's, he's, he's constantly hearing the rhetoric of transformation and then looking at the reality. He's hearing how Melisandre and Stannis are talking, and then he's looking at what they're doing. And so he's trying to trying to gauge how does this how does this politics thing work where you say one thing and do another. I mean, I, I don't think Davos is quite as simple a man as he tells himself because he's had to lie a lot, obviously, Absolutely. as a smuggler. Yeah. But this this particular kind of game, I think he's not I think one of the things that appealed to Davos about Stannis is that Stannis used to not at least seem like he wasn't doing this kind of thing. And now he is. And Davos is like, I didn't, I wasn't supposed to have to like translate and navigate <laughs> stuff with you. You're supposed to say things that I get. Yeah. Davos and Clash is so fun. Um, and it's so, it's so fun to read all you know, his chapters. He doesn't have that many of them, but they're all just bangers. They're all fucking great. Um, you know, and like in, at the beginning, you know, he's thinking about how much he likes St- this Stannis guy and he, he can't entirely understand why doesn't anyone else like the Stannis guy. I mean, he gets it on some level, but he's also like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Everybody else should be. And because he, at heart, he's a commoner. Then as you go forward, he sees through a lot of the performative bullshit that people who are steeped in the culture of lords, the kind of high, high lord culture, the noble culture, um, that those people can't recognize um, because that's their lingua franca. That's what they do. And, and you know, like I think back on that scene as they come up on Storm's End where Davos is, you know, looking around at all of these assembled lords who have just uh, defected to Stannis. And he's like, who are these fucking guys? And like all of the eye rolling that you can kind of read between the lines when, you know, this Florent or that Florent says, you know, oh, oh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this for you, Stannis. I'm going to do that for you, Stannis. And he's like, what, what, what planet are you guys from? Um, and obviously he sees that it's all bullshit, 
Um, and, you know, to Stannis's credit, he understands that Davos is his, his sort of lens through that kind of nonsense. And that's helpful. Yeah, he's like, you know, he like my, my the one person who will tell me truth, as he says at Storm's End. But yeah, and Davos says in the prologue, I think that, yeah, words are only wind, that phrase that comes up a lot in Song of Ice and Fire. But the problem is, of course, when he um when he gets back to Dragonstone in Storm of Swords is that, you know, words become a very important tool. Words are, are part of how the hand of the king, part of how any politician does their job, especially when your job is convincing Stannis not to burn his nephew alive. Right. And even even before he gets back to Dragonstone, Davos is already kind of playing with the, the projection of power game with what may or may not be a vision of the mother. I don't think it actually is, but it's, it's phrased as ambiguous, I think, to get Davos into this headspace of now you have to pretend like you're a prophet and you have to interpret signs and you have to kind of you have to start trying to play at Stannis and Melisandre's level, even if you don't really like or even approve of what they're doing. And so obviously he takes action with Edric direct action as a smuggler and only a smuggler could but what ultimately saves him is is the word is the written word learning to read and then showing stannis the letter from the night's watch and i think that's that's a really i think compelling arc in terms of how davos has come to understand power that he's not you know as much as he was right i think to dismiss the flowery words in the clash of kings now he's understood oh here's how i can make language work for me in some ways this goes back to the allegory of plato's cave um Mm -hmm. where in, in you can kind of look at Davos in Storm especially, but perhaps Clash to a certain extent, as one of the slaves chained to the cave and perhaps, you know, and looking at the shadow and maybe being a little skeptical and that skepticism starts starts to build and he starts to think, maybe I need to look behind or maybe I need to leave the cave or at least realize on some level that those are just shadows and that he needs to he needs to figure out how to manipulate them in the way that the other players in that game are manipulating them. How to be a good politician without selling your soul. Right. I th- that's why I like Davos' story, because I don't, I don't like, and I think the show kind of exacerbated this to a certain degree, I, I, I never liked the conclusion that, that being good just means being dumb, and that's just inherently going to be the case. And I think Davos does show you that there is a way you can hold on to at least most of your conscience and still employ that in a in, in a in a canny fashion i think that's that's obviously hard to do but i think george uh, was was right to focus on it at least a couple times in the series so davos is our main small folk pov obviously one of our main povs on the small folk even though she's not one of them herself is of course Arya. and Arya's early chapters in clash i think are in part meant to just get past all kind of performative projective bullshit it's like here's just the road and the mud and here's what you got to eat today this is just literal realities and then later in the book is when i think this theme starts becoming a little more prominent when she starts trying to seize control seize control of her life through jock and hagar who is literally all performance like (laughs) there's 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 nothing there cast in that shadow i totally agree you know aria's chapters at the beginning of clash are just completely stripped down to just nitty-gritty like the grit and grime of real life. And then she gets to Harrenhal and she is an interesting lens on performative power through who is in control of Harrenhal today. So she, Mm -hmm. and she gets like, you know, to see a few different people who are in control of Harrenhal and thinking, Oh, well now we've got the new guys in and everything's going to change. And then nothing effectively changes. Um, You know, like the Boltons are just, as bad in some ways as the Lannisters, at least as it pertains to Arya and um, the people that she cares about. And so that's, that's kind of a, a way 
for her to to view that performative expression of power as it pertains to as it pertains to the the Lord of Harrenhal. But also, you know, kind of on a mini level, she starts to learn how personal power is also often as a result of projecting power, as a result of mm-hmm. that shadow on the wall. She she exerts power through trick via Jacken, right? Like Jacken gives her that power, and as you said, Jacken is literally all performance. He is is sort of a a flame in and of himself. And she manipulates him to exert power um, and influence in that way. At the end of her arc in Clash, she even uses a trick to kill the guardsmen to escape. She drops a coin. She drops the coin as a sleight of hand so that she can exert power over somebody who is now vulnerable because she has played that trick. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's the most direct or obvious implication of a shadow in the wall, but if you squint... If you if you look at it sideways, you can see it. I think it, it becomes more and more prominent, obviously, in Arya's story. This notion of performance when you get to Bravos, and then you get to the Mercy chapter yep. from the Winds of Winter, and like it's George hitting you over the head with she's she's in a play about the story. Right. <laughs> so that 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 I think is when it, it becomes it becomes very clear. But yeah, even early on, yeah, there's these emphasis on on tricks and gamesmanship, and um, not directly being who you say you are. And I think that's that's an important lessons for Arya to learn, and becomes uh, very relevant in the Storm of Swords when she's meeting up with the Brotherhood without banners. And uh, George very much slow rolls the kind of the reappearance of Beric Dondarrion and Storm. It's like not to like uh, like halfway through the book or close to it by the time Arya sees him. She spends a long time with other Brotherhood members, and those those chapters I think, I think drag maybe a little bit. But one thing I really do like about them is how George builds up the reputation of Beric Dondarrion. He does this in Clash of Kings yep. too in Arya's chapters, and it's, it's constant like this this guy that seems to be everywhere and seems to be unkillable, and and you know he's 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 taken on all these Lannister cronies, and they're all afraid of him him and it's just it shows you that that the man Beric Dondarrion isn't necessarily important as like Beric Dondarrion being in the back of your head and maybe he's around the next corner and maybe he's in the woods and maybe those are his men and like that that magnifies his actual army and then you get the other twist of when you meet Beric Dondarrion it turns out he's actually even wilder than the legend so like the truth of Beric is that he's a he's a revenant and has crazy blood magic (laughs) and that's even wilder than then, you know, the, even wilder than he can't be killed is he has been killed over and over again and just keeps coming back. And yet that part of the legend is only known to a few people. So I think that's a really kind of interesting play on the theme. Another interesting part of that is that even after Beric like dies, dies, like is dead, dead, they still pretend that he's with the Brotherhood Without Banners. The Jack, Jack B. Lucky, who has one eye, pretends that he's Beric. That's the sort of continuity to continue whatever legitimacy Beric Dondarrion had. Or you talked about um, the Brotherhood Without Banners, and I think it's important to note that the Brotherhood Without Banners, they hold themselves out to be kingsmen. There's a reason why they're doing that. They're, They're not just doing that because they're super loyal to Robert, but they have to do that in order to kind of project a legitimacy on the various violent acts which they undertake, including the trials of the bloody mummers and et cetera, et cetera, that they are right. or the, uh, performing the, 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 IO, the IOUs they hand out. Those yep. only have oh, weight yeah. if they're working for the system. Yep. Exactly. So they're, they're saying that they're, they're outlaws or they're, they're outside the system. We're going to, we're, we're, we're not playing that game, man, but they're absolutely playing that game. That's nonsense. They're just playing it in a different way. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And for you know, for Arya, I think being Arya, and I also think being her age, she just sees that as just hypocrisy. That's kind of the only way she can process it. And she has a point, but I think there is something deeper and more political about that, about how you have to invest in the symbols of power, even as you are kind of eroding them. And that, I think that that delicate game is something that Beric and Thoros are very much aware of what they're playing, even if maybe not all their men are. Absolutely. Moving on to John, who's also kind of on the road, a bunch like Arya in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. And just like how Arya kind of hears a lot about Beric Dondarrion before we uh, finally come upon him, John spends a lot of time in A Clash of Kings hearing about strange things potentially happening just over the next hill. That's, that's a lot of John in A Clash of Kings, which can, again, sometimes can sometimes be a slog. But the, the specific uh, instances, I think, are intriguing where, you know, he... He hears about, you know, the, the, the rumor of, of, the, of the others at Craster's Keep, but it's not quite enough for Mormon to act on it. Or, you know, you find, you find the horn and the, 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 the cache of dragonglass at the Fist of the First Men. It seems to signify something, but you don't know what. Or you get to the, the Corrin Halfhand mission and he, he sacrifices himself and all of his men for a rumor because they hear Mance might be doing something with magic and we got to mm-hmm. find out what that is. So it's, it's, it's never, it's never something you can put your finger on. It's always just, here's the, here's the idea, the projection of what's happening. This is the, the first book where John is actually sort of acting as a man of the Night's Watch and interacting with the levers of power within the Night's Watch. And the system within the Night's Watch is very different than I think the rest of Westeros in the sense that there is an actual written code and system of precedent um, that we talked about on Learned Hands in our very first episode, that it's it's similar to a constitution, that the Night's Watch oath is very similar to a constitution. And you can, I think, make an argument that that separates the Night's Watch from the sort of amorphous expression of power that the rest of Westeros and Essos has because they actually have a code, a written code that is de- that everybody swears to. And that code means that power and sovereignty within the Night's Watch pass democratically rather than purely through implication and show of force like the rest of, of Westeros. But as Gior Marmont and John will eventually find out, one can be elevated to the highest post in the Night's Watch, but you still need the support of the men under you in order to survive as leader. Power resides where men believe it resides, and if you lose their their support, they're going to fucking kill you, right? Absolutely, and that that kind of menace under the surface is something that John is is just learning to pick up on. He, when he gets to the fist of the first man, he starts he starts he overhears some men kind of muttering mutinous thoughts, and he's like, uh, "Is that something I need to act upon, or is that just or are they just showing off for each other? Like, what kind of bravado is this? Is this like is this just short term chest puffing, or is this the signs of something?" Is this the signs of the end of our legitimacy? Are people looking at Mormont and thinking that's no longer someone I need to follow? And of course, the answer is both, right? Is right. It, can, right. it can be bullshit. And if it's just two people who are talking about, oh, well, we need to frag Mormont, then that's just two people talking. But if it's a critical mass of people who are like, we need to stab Jon Snow for letting mm-hmm. the wildlings through the wall and et cetera, et cetera, then you've got a problem. And that's that's the application of Varys's riddle writ small and writ large at the same time. It's power resides where men believe it resides, and there's got to be a critical mass of people. And and you know those sorts of like performative, oh well, fuck this guy. That can be passed off as as just sort of 
you know, nonsense, de minimis talking. But at the same time, you get enough people saying it, then then you've got a revolution. Then you've got, you know, treason. Exactly. Then you get the Ides of Bowen Marsh. And that, of course, (laughs) yeah, ends up being... We see that happen to Mormont, and then we see it happen again to Jon Snow in A Dance with Dragons. There's that kind of slow burn kind of movement against him. And the raw material for that is really laid down in A Storm of Swords, where Jon develops this, this very kind of complicated, contradictory reputation. And so you end up in dance with him having very fervent supporters and very fervent opponents. Because on one hand, he has he's he's seen by other Night's Watchmen riding with Mance Raider. He's a spy now. He's a turncloak. His reputation is spreading. On the other hand, his reputation also spreads from as being a battle hero de- de- defending Castle Black. And his, his he takes stands up and takes leadership there and is identified with it. And then you get those great kind of conversations sort of the end of the book where he's talking with Mance and Stannis, who are just such opposing ideas of what a monarch is and where power comes from. And he asks Mance, you know, are you a true king? And Mance is like, well, if you mean, do I have the right oils and amber? And no, no, I got I got none of the, the things I'm supposed to have. My, my, my sense of kingship comes 100% from the willingness of people to follow me. And then he's immediately overrun by Stannis, whose whole thing is the exact opposite of that. Right. So I think this is this is John being faced with is, here's the extremes now that he's stepping up into his own leadership role. Here's the extremes of of where power comes from and the ideas of leadership. That's a great point. So moving on to uh, to, to, da- to Daenerys in A Clash of Kings. She arrives, of course, at the desert city of Karth, where basically nothing is real. <laughs> everything is shadow puppets. Every everything is colorful drug nonsense in Karth. Like there is, you know, I talked about. Stuff in John's stuff uh, beyond the wall about things being very kind of evanescent and something is happening elsewhere. Like that's that's everything in Karth. Everything is everything dissolves once you try to put your hand on it. Yeah. Oh my God, Karth. Um, I suppose the <laughs> the less said about Karth, the better. But it it does seem, as you said, to be a city that runs entirely on artifice and sleight of hand, and there being nothing. And they've projected this power just so much that everybody believes. Everybody believes in it like Tinkerbell. Like that, oh, mm. we believe in it, so it's real. And so that's it. Also, as you as you and Jeff both talked about so beautifully in your House of the Undying chapters, um, the metaphor of a shadow on the wall really smacks you in the face when you're confronted with the Undying, who are almost literally shadows of men. And before that, when you get to whatever the fuck the Danny is seeing when she's seeing all of her various... She goes into all of those rooms and sees Rhaegar and... Then, like all of the nice kings who claim to be the Undying, and mm-hmm. sees Rob Stark, and like the metaphor of the shadow on the wall is is like it's it as you you say this is George going, you know, hitting you over the head with it. Um, and then when you, when you get to the 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 shadows, I mean, they're husks of men. They're they're practic- or excuse me, the Undying are husks of men, um, and so it's it's very similar uh, in that way. They've become so addicted to images because they're just better than reality at some level, and I think that's that's a lesson for how for how power works and how it can how it can wield over people. And I think that then the same thing happens to Danny to a certain extent. I think again more slow burn than what happens to the Undying because you get to a storm of swords, and she's in Slaver's Bay, and she's gone through the house of the Undying, and she's had this reaction where. She doesn't know quite what it meant, but she knows it was really important, and she knows it makes her important, so she has to somehow right. m- make it real. She has to somehow reach out and grab that shadow. She has to make that colorful drug nonsense into her into her real world by any means necessary. And I think <laughs> it's poignant because I think that's where the desperation comes from. It's not. I think it is 
to a large degree, just about freeing those people whose plight she sees in Slaver's Bay. But it's also, I think, this desperation that that what I saw in Karth can't just be a projection. It can't just be images. There has to be substance to this somewhere, right? Yeah, this is Danny becoming a revolutionary in that way. Mm-hmm. She's she is overthrowing the structures and levers of power wherever she encounters them for good reasons for the most part and it's just really interesting to see how her power waxes throughout a storm of swords um because you know even at the beginning of a storm of swords she you know she's still just got a small band of dothraki and jorah mormont and fuck him he's he's an asshole and then like (laughs) you know she's got three dragons and that's cool but they're tiny and then by the end of a storm of swords she is you know a god king superhero that will right burn and kill you know and maim countries if she so chooses and so uh, you know it is her arc in in storm is is astonishing in that way where if you apply it to Ferris's riddle, if you if you go back to power resides where men believe it resides. At, at the beginning of Storm, nobody believes in Daenerys Targaryen despite her dragons. And at the end of Storm, everyone believes in Daenerys Targaryen because she has murdered everyone who doesn't. And it it it's it's amazing uh, to read. That momentum that I love about Danny's storm chapter is just the sense that things are moving so quickly and changing so quickly, and there's that that giddy thrill because I think I think most people, regardless of what their their politics are, want that feeling at yep. some level, right? You want the sense that ah, our dreams are coming true. Here it is, and here's another one, and I can't even keep track of all the good things that are going to come, and like that that feeling. I think it comes from making your dreams real and from having something you believed in suddenly becoming something you can touch. And that's what makes it so great in dance when she has to confront the the grind of Slaver's Bay. And it's just that fact that ruling never feels like that, even in, in, in the best case scenario. And she's just she's just very becomes very dissatisfied with it. And you and I think the reader becomes dissatisfied as well, because we remember when she was a God King superhero and now she's in charge of council meetings. And it's like, eh. and I think that's, that's a, yeah, that's a, I, I think it's, again, it's too simplistic. Just like it's too simplistic to say good equals dumb. It's too simplistic to say, uh, you know, actually wielding power responsibly equals boring. But I think Danny does have to deal with the, the kind of the reality catching up to her and that momentum kind of falling short. Yeah, oh, it's when a, you get to dance with dragons. It's a, it's a great point. And I think you're absolutely right that that's why a lot of people have a problem with some of Danny's uh, dance track dance chapters because they want they want that catharsis of Danny burninating the countryside and they don't get it. And I totally understand that. I think that is, you know, it's a a, a simmer, not a not a not a fireworks display and I think we're going to get a much more kind of Danny and Storm version of that in wins, but I think obviously George is going to complicate complicate that catharsis too in its own way. So, I'm uh, moving on to a Theon as a POV, kind of kind of the opposite in terms of wielding power. Uh, a Theon uh, knows intimately uh, about power residing where men believe it resides. Yes. Uh, because his, his, his whole arcing clash is this, this desperate identity force, this, this attempt to act like someone that you should believe in, that other people believe in. And it finally all catches up to him with the Ramsey reveal when a, when a villain walks in that does not believe in him one bit and is going to take him down. <laughs> well, not just doesn't believe in him, but knows for a fact how stupid he is or how, how right. fucked he is. Rather, That's a great point. Theon's reign in, as Lord of Winterfell is what happens when people 
don't buy your bullshit even a tiny bit. Everyone hates him. Even his own men hate him. And no one believes that he's actually going to be in power long, even if they accept the fact that he has power in the first place. So it's just sort of like everyone is kind of like looking at their watch in that like kind of, you know, <laughs> yep. like exaggerated way that they do in shows being like, when is this asshole going to be gone? To the extent that he has power, it's just it is the thinnest shadow one could project. It is just like, uh, okay, I guess so. But really, are we really going to pay attention to this guy for very long? I don't think so. Yep, it all comes apart. And then the bottom falls out so memorably. You know, Theon, of course, is the one POV in Clash of Kings who doesn't show up in the Storm of Swords. We don't see him again until a dance with dragons. And and um, and uh, he's a... Uh, He's in a much worse position. There's a there's basically nothing left inside him except what Ramsay has allowed to remain. His POV titles have been changed to Reek, and I think one way to think about what what's happened to him is that he has. This is what it looks like when when all of your power and your belief is sacrificed to someone else, and you believe yeah. in someone more than you believe in yourself, and it's like that person is in charge of who I am, and that person is in charge of what I think and what I believe, and it's just like you know. I think everyone gives up a certain bit of themselves to someone, even people in stable, good relationships. But like Theon and Ramsay, like this is when you've given yourself 100% over to the eye of the beholder. Absolutely. And from a personal perspective, that relates because Theon doesn't believe that he has any power and that the person who has power over him is Ramsay. And so therefore, he he has to sort of buy in as a like sort of existent on an existential level he has to and that's that's theon's arc in in dance um but i also think from kind of like a more step wider political level um his arc in dance is is frankly similar to his clash arc in the sense that he gives the he gets to view the bolton regime which is now claiming to you know rule the north struggle with a polity uh, a group of people which it claims to rule that A, doesn't believe that the regime itself is legitimate, and B, is actively working to subvert that regime. It's kind of like a broader version of the people in Winterfell reacting to Theon. It's the whole North, except this time it's the whole North reacting to the Boltons. Now, the the Boltons are a little bit more savvy than Theon was at projecting the trappings of power. The marriage to fake Arya is evidence of that the bolton that's that's an entirely um trappings of power shadow on the wall stuff because they want it to they want to project that for the sense of legitimacy but that projection only goes so far some people have bought into the boltons of course out of expediency or you know political for political reasons but it's not a critical mass of northmen in fact i think as we're going to find out in wins when it comes out next week, as you guys have told us so many times, <laughs> um, is that the critical mass of Northmen want to murder the fuck out of the Boltons at their earliest possible opportunity. And that's what, that's what we're going to see. Yeah, I totally agree uh, with that idea that Theon is seeing a, a somewhat more successful, but ultimately still fatally flawed version of his own attempt to take over and that the Boltons have, have smarter ideas, but still like, yeah, that there's, that the, the 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 true stark power is still slumbering and there's i think an immense catharsis to be found in 
people believing in the Starks even when they should, even when by some merit they shouldn't be, or they should be moving on or trying to make peace with the Boltons. But because the Boltons are so bad, and because they have found worth in the Starks, there is still that belief in the Starks. And because there's belief in the Starks, that that's how they can have power again. I think yep. we're going we're gonna to see that definitely unfold in the story to come. And speaking of the, the North and Stark power there, moving on to uh, our final POV, Bran Stark. So in A Clash of Kings, he's got this kind of struggle he's dealing with about his political side and his magical side. You know, are you going to be a prince or are you going to be a warg? And I think I think both halves of those touch on the, the shadow on a wall theme and the idea that power being something you have to invest with in your own belief. Because that certainly applies to to ruling the north as its own independent kingdom now. You have to you have to act like we got to, as Wyman yep. Vanderley says, you got you to make your own coins. You got to make your own ships. You got to act like it's, you act like an independent kingdom and that's how you become one. And you got you to be able to keep your vassals in line. And, you know, with, with, with the dreamscape stuff, you know, Bran has to, has to be able to project himself into these ambiguous images and interpret them. And, and Jojen shows up to help him do that. And, you know, making sense of a dream about your faces being skinned off isn't entirely the same as making sense of a missive from Civil Wars in the Hornwood Forest. But I think in, in, in both cases, Bran is, is learning to kind of take his own presence into account and tr- try to deal with what he brings to the table. Yeah, I think of the sort of mystical aspects of Bran's story in the context of the shadow and the wall metaphor as sort of like, did you read or have you read the Hitchhiker's Guide trilogy? Yes, yes, I have. Okay, so it's sort of like flying in the Hitchhiker's Guide trilogy. So like in order to fly in Hitchhiker's Guide, there's this, you could, people can fly, everybody can fly in this, this universe. You just have to throw yourself at the ground and miss. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and in order to miss, you just have to like be distracted at right at the time when you would hit the ground. And that's sort of, you have to be- essentially believe that you're going to miss is, is the idea. Um, and that's sort of the sort of silly, it, it's silly in the Hitchhiker's Guide galaxy or universe because that's the, the Hitchhiker's Guide, but it, it reminds me of how this metaphor applies to Brand's story because, Bran's whole thing about opening his third eye, about becoming the god king that he's a, he's a, a eventually going to become, about becoming the the three eyed crow, the three eyed raven, is he has to he has to believe in it. He has to like n- miss the ground. He has to fly when he's missing the ground, and he, and he has to sort of like allow himself to be taken away by this mystical power that is endemic in him. And so it sort of it just reminds me of of that idea of missing the ground when you're falling. Yeah, that's great. I love that that concept from from Hitchhiker's Guide. It's it's that, and I think the the shadow on a wall, power residing where you believe it resides, metaphor gets at this. It's having control and losing control at the same time, and I yeah. think that's 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 really hard to do. But I think it's a lot. It's a lot of adulthood is asserting your control over a situation and realizing how much is beyond you at the same time. And how much how much is gonna is gonna go awry, and you know so things are are both real and unreal, and you're in charge of everything, but you're only in charge because everyone else believes you're in charge, and that 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 interplay is yeah so fluid and so fascinating. Those magical and political halves I think really come together as we were covering with Manu recently in that 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 final brand chapter, which is just a kind of a a wonderful capstone uh, to his arc when he kind of embraces control. I 
was watching the live stream of that episode with uh, Manu on the last brand chapter in A Clash of Kings. Um, and it struck me like square in the face um, when you guys were talking about how a big part of the chapter is literally emerging from a cave from the crypts. And um, there's a part of the allegory of the cave that the Shadow and the Well theory is based on um, that we didn't talk about in Tyrion 2, and I don't think I've ever really talked about it previously, um, is that the the setup, the actual cave part, is just part one of Plato's allegory of the cave. Part two is when the people, the slaves who are in the cave, emerge from the cave um, and see the light. And Plato's allegory of the cave is about truth in Plato's version the shadows dancing on the wall are truth uh, versus falsity. Um, and when you emerge from the cave, you see the light, you see truth. And at first, you're, it's hard to see because your eyes are not accustomed to it. And you're, you see fire and you're scared by it. And you see, I don't know, cars driving by or whatever was around <laughs> in Plato's time. And you think, oh, that's bad. I don't like that. But eventually, you you come to understand and realize that this is life. This is truth. This is real. And so, Bran, when he comes out of the crypt, it, he is. It, it's very similar. He is emerging into the light after being stuck in a cave, in a in a in a crypt in underground, and he sees what has been done to Winterfell. He sees the death and destruction that has been visited upon Winterfell and it's very difficult for him at first but eventually he's going to understand that this is the real world this is how it works and i think that that's not an accident quite frankly that this idea of emerging from the cave or emerging from the crypts is such a cent- centerpiece of that last chapter where this idea was was or in the book where this idea was that's really really beautifully said i think it's it's so poignant that I think you can see Bran realizing that, you know, you can only feel that feeling of liberation by realizing that you weren't liberated before. And mm-hmm. you only can feel mm-hmm. free when you realize, oh, I've been, I haven't been living right or I have been living a lie. And so it, it, it's, it's, it, it's inherently tied up in pain, that feeling of growth and rebirth, because you're, you have to be moving on from something. And I think that um, you have to be letting go of old illusions. And I think you see that really strongly in that brand chapter for sure. Yeah, it's such a great chapter and you guys did such a great job with it. Well, thank you. And then when you get to, to Bran and a Storm of Swords, obviously this is very distant from the levers of power themselves. This is some of the most like high fantasy Tolkien-esque travelogue stuff in the series. But it's still playing with the idea that you you invest your belief and your faith and your understanding in things and you give you give symbols and you give ideas their real meaning. And that's mostly done in Storm Brandstorm Chapters through the idea of of stories. The the Night of the Laughing Tree story, for example. Yeah. That's it's a that story is being shown to us as being different on who hears it and what they make of it. Like Brand doesn't really realize what he's being told, that he's being really told the story of political power over the course of his father's generation and what happened there. But he sees it as a story that should have had a few more fights and maybe not so much kissing stuff. And that's all that means to him. It's just like, oh, that was a nice, a nice story. Maybe I'll hear a new one tomorrow. It's like that it doesn't stand out as important to him. And it's only important to you, the reader, if you 
are invested in the story and you've really and you've thought things through enough to pick up on who all these people probably are and what they're all probably doing and then there's i think that that great little bit in the chapter where jojen says to bran uh wait ned never told you this story and then that 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 lets you know like that's you know that's the puppeteers who have reasons to be telling you these stories and reasons to be allowing you to have belief and faith in these things and and it's to you know i think the younger starks have to all of them realize the the manipulations going on behind those images and the the reason they're being told those stories. And same thing happens for Bran at the at the night fort when he's like he's jumping at every little noise he hears, not because those noises are objectively scary, but because he is investing them with the power of the stories he has heard. That has to be a ghost. Even if he heard that same sound somewhere else, it wouldn't be a ghost. But because it's in the night fort, it has to be a ghost. And right. I think you know that's that's how a lot of power works. Yeah, stories are important. If we if we go back to the finale of G- Game of Thrones, and you have that, uh, you have to have a great story to have a leader. Which we can talk all we want about how hokey that was, but they're not wrong, right? Like, and the stories sure. matter, um, and stories are effective at creating those shadows, at um, getting people to buy into your power. Brand's arc in Storm kind of experiencing those stories while he's going on, you know, a bit of an adventure himself and living uh, an interesting story is absolutely important to his understanding of the nature of power, of the nature of what it means to, you know, grow up, to be an adult and and kind of understand those things. I also think, and, and this is another thing that occurred to me, that there is a third part of Plato's allegory of the cave, which is known as the return to the cave. So after the slave has gone into the light and experienced truth and, you know, learned to live with it and become and, and learn to understand how good it is, there's a whole part about the slave wanting thinking to themselves, well, I better go back and and rescue all of those people who are stuck in chains because they should be brought out into the into the light. The way that Plato's allegory goes is that when the freed slave goes back into the cave, one, there's a bunch of that the freed slave now can't see anything because their eyes have not are not accustomed to it. But two, the slaves that are chained there fight him. They fight him. They don't want to leave the cave because that's all they uh, they know and they don't know what's going to happen when, you know, they leave the cave and they're comfortable there. Bran obviously does eventually return to a cave. He goes back to a cave, exactly. which, yep. which I think, you know, like making the metaphor literal, he goes, it, it's there. But two, like if you want to look at it from a meta perspective, like he's going to have to convince people that, you know, the children are real. The others are real. All of these things that you thought was all, was all bullshit that in order to save the world or help save the world, he's going to have to bring people into the light and show them where real power is. And I, I, I think that it's kind of directly on point for the rest of Brand's arc that he's going to have those exactly those struggles. Yeah, that's perfect. I think Bran is going through such such a, a you know clean incarnation of the the hero's jar, hero's journey mythology, and maybe it's um I know that's it's too on the nose for a lot of people, but I think he he touches so directly on those those core images. I think and 
I think it's going to be a real kind of, George always talks about the bittersweet ending, but I think Bran kind of embracing the, the trappings of power when he has come closer to quote unquote real power more than anyone else, I think could be really interesting when he, he's, he's, he's a sorcerer, tree wizard, but also has to convince people to, to, to follow him as a leader. That's a great point. So I think that about wraps us up for a discussion of uh, The Shadow on a Wall and looking back at A Clash of Kings, looking forward in The Storm of Swords. I appreciate you coming on so much, Clint. Uh, it's going uh, to be a lot of fun doing stuff with a lot of different people while Jeff is gone. But I know I wanted to, to start it off with someone we've, uh, we've had on before and who does such great podcasting work on their own. So uh, I really appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure. Where can, uh, where can the people find you on the internet? Uh, so you can find our podcast at Learned Hands pod Lennon hands podcast um we're available on all of your favorite podcasting apps you can find us on twitter at learned hands pod um you can also find out more about how to interact with us a little bit more by making a donation to um, some really great legal charities uh, at westerosbar.org um, you can find me on twitter at clint w you can also find my blog at lawsoficeandfire.com so as always, folks, you can uh, rate and review our podcast on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, on uh, Podbean, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can check us out on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. So our, our next up and our rotating guest hosts while Jeff is away... We're going to have someone else we've had on before, Luke, a.k.a. Luke is Amazing from the People's History of the Old Republic podcast. Nice. We had a great time talking over the uh, Kingdom of Heaven movie with him for one of our Patreon episodes, and we're going to have him back on to talk about his favorite character in the Song of Ice and, Song of Ice and Fire universe, uh, Brynden Rivers, a.k.a. Bloodraven. We're going to talk yeah. all about the Tree Wizard, even the even more advanced version of Bran. So uh, we're, that's going to be out next week for folks, so uh, look forward to that. And uh, thank you so much for listening, and we will uh, see you next time.